1: Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalsberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon.
2: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm so happy to have my friend, Tara Brock, join me today for my newest episode of the Real Love podcast series. Tara is an amazing teacher and author of many books, including Radical Acceptance and True Refuge. In 1998, Tara founded the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., which is now one of the largest and most dynamic non-residential meditation centers in the country. Tara's podcast receives over a million downloads each month. Her themes reveal the possibility of emotional healing and spiritual awakening through mindful, loving awareness, as well as the alleviation of suffering in the larger world by practicing compassion and action. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming on the podcast today. I'm
3: totally delighted to be with you.
2: It's so great. I'm really happy to have your voice as part of this series on real love. Um, I know your book, Radical Acceptance, has been wildly popular. People quote it to me all the time. Uh, And I thought we could start today actually with a quote from it. For many of us, feelings of deficiency are right around the corner. It doesn't take much, just hearing of someone else's accomplishments, being criticized, getting into an argument, making a mistake at work, to make us feel that we're not okay. Beginning to understand how our lives have become ensnared in this trance of unworthiness is our first step toward reconnecting with who we really are. And what it means to live fully. But didn't you have some funny thing happen where there was like a poster or something of, of a, an upcoming course with your photo and it said something like, What's wrong with this woman?
3: <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah. It, it was at Naropa and I was going to teach there. I was letting people know about the book and there was a poster with me and and, it, and the caption underneath was, Something is wrong with me. <laughs> It was such a such a strange welcome to a new place to teach, you know. <laughs> that
2: is fun. When isn't that the common thought we have? Really. And maybe even especially in a new place or with new people. That's like,
3: exactly, exactly right.
2: Guess what I'm hiding? I don't know what.
3: Yeah, and it's the fear in getting to know people that they're gonna find out, you know, it's like they like me now, but if they really knew, that kind of thing. Mhm.
2: So do you use the term self-worth and self-love um, synonymously?
3: Not, no, I don't, really. Um, worth has a particular kind of a flavor to it of how valued we are by others. Uh-huh. You, you can sometimes feel that you're valued, but that there's not a real deep, warm embrace. So there's there's some different, it's a different flavor.
2: So if you're valued by others uh perhaps maybe there's still this lurking fear that they don't quite see us.
3: Exactly right. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and you can be valued and, you know, like you're helping them, you're doing good things, but, but that doesn't mean that their heart really embraces all of who you are. So, yeah, you're not fully seen and, and included in them.
2: I actually tell a story in real love about, I was, I was at IMS at the Insight Meditation Society as it happened, and I was asleep. And dreaming. And what I was dreaming was that I was doing an interview while working at the Insight Meditation Society and in the course of the interview, somebody said to me, uh, why do we love people? And I responded in the dream by saying, because they see us. Mm. And then I woke up and I thought that was really good. You know,
3: Mm. that was really
2: a good answer.
3: Yeah, I I think of it the same way. It's kind of like the the two wings of the bird that you know to be really free. And one is to be seen, and one is to be loved. And we need both. Mm-hmm. People can't really love us if they don't see us, and people can't really see us unless their heart's wide open to include all of who we are. So they they kind of are inseparable. It's beautiful.
2: And I also spent some time in. Uh, Real Love, talking about the stories we tell about ourselves. And this is something you touched on related to self-worth and the capacity to move out of old patterns. And here's another quote from Radical Acceptance. Perhaps the biggest tragedy of our lives is that freedom is possible, yet we can pass our years trapped in the same old patterns. We may want to love other people without holding back, to feel authentic, to breathe in the beauty around us to dance and sing yet each day we listen to inner voices that keep our life small so i was i was really curious about that our ability as human beings to shift narrative and i think you know it's a combination of the stories we tell about ourselves and also the stories the world at large may be telling about us. You know, I was teaching in uh, Kentucky somewhere, and uh, somebody said to me, "I don't see how the world tells stories about us." You know, because people don't know us, so how could they be telling a story about us? And I just said, "You know, I think everything, really, in some way, tells a story about us, including architecture." And I talked about how at IMS we we raised all this money to build that thing in the front. I don't know if you've seen it, which is an entrance for, it's like a, a, a ramp for wheelchairs. Uh, because in the past, if you were in a wheelchair, you had to go around the side, you know, through the back, and it was snowy and all those things. in New England, and uh, so we, we raised all this money to build this. It's not very pretty, and uh, I learned, personally, I learned to drive when I was much older, because I'm a New Yorker, and so, you have to like back out of the driveway and like not hit it and do all these things. And it's, it's generally a pain, but it's the right story to be telling, you know, about who belongs, who gets to walk in the front door and all of that. And so, I, I think so many things, they're continually telling stories about whether we belong, for example.
3: It's really true. Um, I, I feel like, in a way, I mean, if I think of my own life, the way I came to have my story about myself is completely um, drawn from generations of stories about who we are, my parents' idea about who I would be, the culture's idea about, you know, in this color skin and this economic and this religion means this. And so I grew up with this self-concept that was, you know, fed by all these different streams of kind of collective storytelling. So I think it's true for all of us. And we're really wedded to our stories. What's so interesting to me is how people can have stories about themselves that create huge amounts of suffering, like a story like um, I'm always going to fail or a story like anybody that gets close to me will end up rejecting me or leaving me and hold on to them so tightly, even though they give them... It gives them so much pain and um, and and really they're just stories that the more we hold tightly the more we then play, act out of those stories in ways that recreates them and so I often you know say you know what is causing us to hold on to painful stories you know with such a grip and and I really feel like um, so much is explained by our survivals negativity bias that, it's safer ultimately to believe something really painful because then we think we at least have some control and can defend against bad people. So we'd rather keep believing something terrible about ourselves than really the truth, which is we don't know. And it's much scarier to live in that uncertainty. And yet in order to uh, relinquish the stories and really be open to growing, we have to be willing to not, not some you know some representation of reality, but just hang in there with not knowing.
2: It's kind of amazing. Um, how do you encourage people to take that step? Like, because we believe, obviously, as as teachers, that it's uh, revolutionary, but completely possible to undo those messages and those stories and and to really turn it around and uh, maybe that's the hardest part in some ways perhaps is having that even beginning of belief that it's possible and therefore worth trying
3: yeah well i think it's one of the um most deepest deconditionings that we are all going through is is letting go of it's not just a story it's like when i say to somebody um you know this is just a belief what but inside their body their body's holding it too in a very physical and emotional way so it's really the ultimate deconditioning of an old and and imprisoning reality and my sense is that the first step for many people is the challenge like is this really true? It's like Sogyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, you and I both love, has that phrase "real but not true," mm-hmm. and can we get that this might feel very real as a belief and as a feeling, but it's not the truth about reality itself? Mm-hmm. So, even challenging, just being able to say, "Is this real but not true?" Perhaps, is begins to put a wedge in that certainty. And then the, the next thing I often do with people is to, and myself, is to say, okay, so what is the experience of believing this? How, how is this affecting my body and my heart? And I think when we can get how much suffering it is and really feel it in a very direct, visceral way, there arises a kind of compassion for ourselves that helps to loosen the grip on the belief just feeling compassion for how much pain it's bringing us and so then that self compassion process allows us to begin to um step out some and um in some way get that we don't have to buy in in the same way
2: i think um first of all you are one of the great champions of the the technique rain rain and uh I sort of have the impression that you it's evolved for you and that it's um, those those initials, that acronym has taken on some new levels of meaning. Uh, so I've read some of your writings. That, um, and that figures in here, you know, in terms of looking at our experience. And so do you want to um, take a few moments and just explain your uh, evolved or, or, you know, more current sense of rain? Yeah,
3: and thank you for asking, Sharon, because it's... One of the uh, mindfulness and compassion tools that I find is most supportive for people. Again, it's the two wings. And initially, rain was to recognize and allow or acknowledge, and investigate. And initially, the N was non-identification, not identifying. But I found that um, people got very confused by the N and that the, that the acronym was missing the heart side of things, compassion. Mm-hmm. So I changed it to be recognize, allow, investigate and nurture, bring compassion to what you see. And, that the, and then the non-identification is actually what we rest in, it's the realization we rest in after those slight intentional doings. So each of the four letters has a slight intention to it like to recognize what's there and to make room for it allow it to investigate with inquiry and to offer some gesture of kindness and it's after we've evoked those qualities of contactful presence and kindness that we actually discover that that presence is uh, free of any narrow identifications and and so i always encourage people after they do rain to just the way in a real rain, after it falls, it's it's afterwards that we experience all the flowering. Well, the flowering after rain is really the freedom of non-identification. But the reason I, I, I found I needed to shift it was without the compassion, the deep knots, the deep wounds that people were trying to uh, work with um, didn't heal because the the key element needed
2: was the self-compassion that's so interesting because of course you know in my um years of teaching so much loving kindness practice and these days with kind of a psychological western psychological uh, emphasis on self-compassion at least in in some schools um i often encounter people who say well that's just being lazy you know or uh what do you mean you know let go and begin again or um, that's just an excuse, and uh, so I find it fits into the same controversy I've always encountered pretty well with loving kindness. Not for everybody, of course, but for many, which is the idea that these these qualities like kindness and caring and compassion just make you sort of weak and gooey, you know, and not not really strong and able to take a stand, and uh, you know, and especially in these times where. There's so much disruption and so much societal um, difficulty and people are trying to find sources for their energy and sources for their uh, clarity to, to know how to act, um, to try to make this a better world. It, it seems especially sad that qualities like love and compassion aren't always at the forefront of that discussion.
3: I'm so with you. I mean, just to think that the word courage is really greatness of heart. Uh And yet the prevailing story in terms of our political world and power politics is that um, the winner is the one that just never looks vulnerable, always looks completely like filled with certainty and has power over. And, Mm And what's interesting to me, I, I've going back over and over again to really evolutionary um, psychology and the way that our brains are developing, and it's really the more primitive brain that um, gives rise to that story. It's the limbic system that is into fight, 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 flight, freeze that says that's the way to survive. That gives rise to the the idea that it's dangerous to be vulnerable, and it's the more recently evolved brain where, which is the site of, you know, compassion and mindfulness and empathy and so on, that says, hey, we need to, um, our, our real strength as a species is going to come from our collectivity, from our collaboration, from our holding hands, and so there's really, that's, that's where the strength comes from, it's in, in the unifying, and, um, yet. Out of fear, we can get hijacked by the limbic brain and by limbic politics, and that seems to be,
2: right now, the
3: prevailing flavor.
2: I love that phrase, limbic politics. I'm going to start using that.
3: I've never never said it before.
2: (laughs) (laughs) My friend Tara Broxer, that's limbic politics.
3: (laughs) It may need to be refined a bit. (laughs) But we can go
2: with it for now. <laughs> That's really funny because uh, something I've asked often on on this podcast is, you know, what comes to mind when you think about the word love? And if you were going to have another word, um, maybe without so many of these associations of weakness and sentimentality, and so on, what would it be? So for me, that word is connection. So uh, for mm-hmm. you, is it greatness of heart?
3: Mm, it would be um, a tender heart space, mm. you know, tender awake heart space, something like that. I'd, I'd, you know, have to hang in with it more. But it has to do with spacious and tender and warm. It's more formless, and mm. open. Mm. I like the question just because it makes my heart open. Just it's <laughs> <play.
2: laughs> great, although. My favorite term has got to be limbic politics.
3: I think we can have that as the, the shadow side. <laughs> yes, I will
2: write a few letters. Um, anyway, uh, I uh, I did an evening with Bell Hooks um, not too long ago, and uh, uh, talking about real love, talking about my book, and and she took an ex- she took exception to one point that I made, which I, I find very interesting. Like the book. And as you know, is written with three sections. The first about developing real love for ourselves, which you know, is in no way like narcissism or, or being selfish. And the second is about real love for an other, whether that's a parent or a child or a partner, or neighbor, whatever it might be. And the third is about love for all beings or love for life itself. And what I said in the book was that I didn't think one had to like completely love oneself before... You know, you could go on to loving another, and um, that I felt like I knew people who did love others quite sincerely, and did not so much love themselves. But that wasn't sustainable. That you know, you'd end up, your motivation would end up getting kind of weird and distorted, and your generosity would end up looking more like resentment and martyrdom. And um, and Belle said she actually didn't think you could love others until you loved yourself. That she felt you could care for others or care about others but not actually love them so that's sort of hanging there in the air um one of the reasons I I came to what I said what I wrote was not only what I'd observed but because I seen that loving oneself sometimes became like a project for people and they thought I can't move on you know until I get this one down and you know, forget everyone else. But in the very act of loving or even caring for others, I think there's a kind of self-respect that can emerge.
3: I, by the way, agree with you just if you think just in terms of skillful means that, mm-hmm. you know, we we get caught by the story of something's wrong with me. And sometimes the way into loving, it's just loving, is... Um, you know, when you're watching a child or you're remembering your grandmother holding you or some other avenue and whatever wakes up some tenderness, start there. And then and then it can expand. And I would say that, you know, there's, there's degrees of loving. It's like you can love, if you don't love yourself and you're loving another, it's not going to be completely open-hearted, awake loving because there's still some egoic contraction there, and that's okay, you know, that we we just, we're not always completely open or or completely closed, but it's just, there's something very compassionate and wise about finding where there's some possible softening, and and starting there, and then, and then, and then beginning more and more to open it to ourselves, because we really can get very, so... So locked in with this sense of, you know, fundamentally, you know, damaged goods sense that, um, that we need to kind of do, do it another sequence. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, um, a story, I think it was Gil, Gil Fronsdale. He had this book about, uh, teacher in front of both of ours, about a fabled monastery and, um, in one of the stories, this engineer who just was very in his head and not you know, it's not even trying to love himself, but just his heart you know, just was very mental, very having having a really hard time opening to practice and he and the abbess sent him from the monastery to a to volunteer for a year at a hospital with Premies and hold these little fragile beings and he found the best way to do it was just to hold him against his heart and against his chest. In a few months, this tenderness starts spreading through him and starts melting the walls, you know. Finally, after a year, he returns to the monastery, and and she gives him the instructions. Don't think about what's happening. Just let awareness be seated in that tender warmth you feel in your body. And, and I love this story. Mm-hmm. Just, so his route was... To start falling in love with these little fragile beings, Mm -hmm. just the way so many of us can love our dog, but we'll be harsh with ourselves. It's our way in. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: That's beautiful. In fact, you know, I I I did kind of a lot of crowdsourcing for this book. I really try to meet with a lot of people or elicit their stories on social media and so on. And um, the very first group I met with. Uh, this man raised his hands and he said, you know, most of us think a good relationship is 50-50. My dog and I, we're 100-100. <laughs> that's the perfect story.
3: Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, when when people are having a hard time holding themselves um, with love, sometimes, you know, I'll have them think of the love with their dog or sense the the, the way their dog is... You know, just kind of adoring them and just let that warmth kind of just completely bathe in it, you know, and it really works.
2: I might have to get a dog. You have a dog.
3: I have a dog. And, you know, it's amazing. I can feel the oxytocin. You know, I can feel (laughs) the hormones rushing through me. I come home from traveling and it just she's a happy making creature. So great. Yeah.
2: So you work in kind of the belly of the beast these days, uh, very often it, you know, people tell me that, um, DC is a very, very tough place in terms of polarization, clearly. And, uh, uh, you know, for people who are, um, unhappy or frightened about what is happening politically in this country, uh, for many there's uh channeling into the local level whether it's healing relationship with neighbors or trying to have conversations with others whatever their view and but there's also a political effort for people to be involved in their in their local communities and um in DC it's a little more difficult since there's no <laughs> congressional representation and so on but uh It's really, it's the hot question, you know, how can you possibly embody love for someone and listen to them and not compromise what you might feel strongly yourself is right or a matter of principle or your vision of of how the world would better be. And, you know, a lot of people talk about we need to be together and we need to have conversations. And I think that's true, but I think it's only part of the truth.
3: Say a little more. But well, you know,
2: I mean, in the sense that, you know, a lot of people feel like if we can just get into a room together and we will find ourselves in one another. And I think that may be true, but that doesn't mean all views are equal, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and some people may hold views, including me, you know, mm-hmm. um, that are ultimately pretty harmful. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so it's like, how do we find Love. For this sense of others, you know, for others and this sense of having, like we're all in this together somehow and we need to really be listening and talking to one another and yet um, maybe take very strong action against them.
3: I'm with you. I've watched over the years how, and I'll just speak personally, when I feel um, how, how much... Anger and dislike comes up in me when I feel the potential harm that can happen mm-hmm. like i remember right before we attacked Iraq I, um, I was I could see the administration building up steam and and just sensed all the Ripples of violence that you know in through the world that was going to come of it and I would read the papers every day Sharon and I just like it was it was very personal. I was really really angry and felt hateful towards certain white males in power that were that seemed to personify, you know, pushing the movement. And and I started this meditation this newspaper meditation kind of where I'd read it and then I pause and I'd feel and I let all the anger and hatred be there and then find underneath it that I was feeling fear, fear for what was going to happen. And then I'd open to that, and I'd feel, find underneath the fear there was this grief about, you know, I could sense Iraqi parents and American parents and all, all the grieving of the, lose, of the loss. And then underneath, underneath that was care, you know, I just care about the world. And if I could get myself into, back to the care, then there was a way to start sensing, okay, let's act. And I remember, you know, a bunch of us got together, um, you know, the Washington Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and and then a lot of religious leaders, you know, demonstrating. And a lot of us got arrested at, at this particular demonstration right before we attacked Iraq. And what was so notable about it was that it was not like this shaking our fists in rage. It was this peace rally that was saying please please let's not hurt others you know Mm -hmm. and and so the vibe was not bringing more hate and anger into the world and that's what feels important that we um go ahead and know our views and know what we think is going to cause more suffering in the world and do everything we can to prevent it but see if we can pause enough so that our actions are coming out of the caring, not more anger that creates more polarization. Because I've watched, um, even amongst people, I agree with their views, um, creating more of an other, you know, of a, a bad other that actually makes it very, very difficult for us to really bring people who have the same interests in mind together.
2: That's fantastic. And it's difficult. And part of it, I think, I actually have a a quotation also from you about anger, Um, because part of it seems to be the strength of mind to actually sit there and acknowledge the anger, because you have to do that before you can go deeper. So you said, um, anger is part of our most primal survival system. It's saying there's something going on here that can really get in the way of us meeting our deepest needs. It's a call to energize and needs to be attended to. So I, I just have this picture of you sitting there um, with your newspaper meditation and allowing the anger to be there so that you can go more deeply into it and discover what was underneath it.
3: Exactly. And really the intention behind that um, that quote is that every emotion we have is intelligent. And we've got such a deep conditioning to either disregard our emotions or make them wrong. Even, you know, from spirit, spiritual, uh, we can get the idea that there's something bad about anger that's, you know, that is a shadow unto itself. And it's not. It's like, it's a really intelligent message. It, it's supposed to have us act. And we can get hooked on Anger hormones, and so that everything that you know that we come across triggers anger and then it becomes not only dysfunctional but causes trouble, but it's a portal i mean every every emotion is and and if we pay attention and become present in the midst of it, then we can act with wisdom and intelligence.
2: do you think if we go into any emotion like even you know what are? commonly termed in Buddhist teaching like destructive emotions or afflictive emotions, like greed, uh, hatred, fear, we will find a kind of caring that's somehow distorted. Like, you know, we care, we want a sense of belonging, we want to feel connected, and yet uh, we try to do that in some really weird ways, you know, because of the stories we've been told.
3: Yeah, and that's more, um, more kind of from the Tibetan tradition that, there's really, there's really one vast awareness, and life is wanting to live, and it's not wanting to die, and it, and then it gets torqued, you mm-hmm. know, in different ways, so it turns into grasping. But under grasping is the love for being alive, mm-hmm. and under fear is the not wanting to not be alive, and under. Mm-hmm grief is that really that sense of the the ache and the soreness and the emptiness that having lost what we love it's all about loving and losing mm-hmm.
2: so interesting well that would be a, a a very profound doorway into loving oneself more you know instead of uh chiding oneself for you know one's greed or whatever and saying god i've been you know meditating for so long and i'm still you know, a mess, and I still get fear, and I still get greed, and I've been in therapy forever, and I still have all these things, and uh, it's a very beautiful reframing of our experience.
3: I love the way you're putting that, because it does directly allow us to fall back into loving ourselves. Like, I sometimes will work with people that are struggling with desire and craving, and do a practice of tracing back the craving and the desire, and you know, really sensing, so really what is it I'm wanting? What is it I'm really, really wanting? What's the feeling or experience deep down? And ultimately there's a feeling or experience we want of belonging and being one and loving and being at home. And and when when we come back to that, then there's a lot of compassion and wisdom around the way it gets torqued and we can begin to unpack it.
2: No, that's very beautiful.
3: You know, I keep thinking as we're um, speaking, I don't know, I you might have this quote in in your book, and I have I have only read part right now, and mm-hmm. I'm loving it, as I mentioned to you, but Srinur Sargadatta has this uh, plea, he says, all I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect, give yourself eternity and infinity, and discover you do not need them, you are beyond.
2: Well, no, I, I don't have that quotation in my book.
3: What I love about it is, um, you know, make love of yourself perfect. Okay, what's this self we're loving? Well, it's really, we're, we're loving the life that's right here. I mean, we're not loving, it's not the story of a self. And that's where I think there's some confusion. We're, full, we're allowing ourselves to love the expression of life that's living through us. And... When we do it, you know, people are afraid that if I love myself, it's just going to create more ego. And often, and I don't, I often don't argue. I say, well, why don't you just experiment and see if that's the experience that comes? Because when we really start embracing the aliveness that's here in all its forms, like we are talking, you know, the anger that comes and the jealousy and the hurt. When we embrace it, we start um, discovering in that embrace that the what we are is beyond any form. It's like it really dissolves the selfness into a real belonging. So, um, but I love Srinur Sargadatta's quote just because he really gets, it's like, all I plead with you is this, just make love of yourself perfect. Go ahead, you'll find you're beyond what you ever thought was self, you know.
2: Wow. That is so fantastic. It's like, Wait, my book's already in print. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> wow, I missed that one. Okay.
3: Well, I'll let you it go. Can frame it with, with all of the um, what you're doing now, all the talk around yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> May we love ourselves, please.
2: Wow, well, how beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you for talking to me today. And I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add.
3: Well, just that I'm really, really grateful that you wrote a book called Real Love that has what it has in it. Cause I feel like it's truly, um, you know, it's the medicine we need Sharon. It's, it's really what we need to, um, to heal. And, uh, you just did a beautiful job at it. So real, a real bow.
2: Thank you so much. And for those of you who would like to check out Tara's work and her many amazing offerings, Uh, You can go to her website at tarabrach.com. It's T-A-R-A-B-R-A-C-H dot com. And, And most immediately, you can look for a retreat she's teaching at the Omega Institute on radical acceptance, which will be July 7th through the 9th. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalsberg.com. May all beings be happy.